You want to turn to the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. This is our seventh week in the Olivet Discourse. We're in Matthew 25, 1 to 13. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, we thank you for the richness of your inspired and errant word, your 66 books. And as we spend several months in the Olivet Discourse, learning about the end times and today talking about the return of the bridegroom, your son for his bride, the church, believers, we ask, Father, that you would impart your scriptures to our hearts, that we might be changed by truth that comes from you. Guide us, we ask, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Probably many of you know the name D.L. Moody, Dwight Moody. He was a pastor of yesteryear. He was the founder of the Moody Church and the founder of Moody Bible Institute, which today is a university with both a college and a graduate school. If you know anything about D.L. Moody, you know that he not only was a very faithful preacher and pastor, but he was a very faithful evangelist. He told many people about salvation by faith in Christ alone. So D.L. Moody was this individual that would regularly tell others about Jesus. There was one particular young man, recently married, a friend of the family, and D.L. Moody had the opportunity on occasion to tell him about Jesus. It wasn't that the young man didn't know about Jesus. He had grown up in the church, but he had never personally accepted Christ as Savior. So one day, D.L. Moody, knowing that this young man and his bride were moving west, he made a time to get together with them, and he said, look, Today is the day of salvation. It's not enough to know about Jesus. You need to know Jesus. You need to believe in Jesus. You need to ask Jesus, his death on the cross to be the payment of your sin, his resurrection to be evidence of life after the grave. You need to accept Jesus as Savior. And the young man responded to D.L. Moody. He said, this is the deal, Pastor. I'm going out west. I've got some goals. And when I'm set in life, when I have all the money I need for the rest of my life, we'll move back. And at that point, I will ask Jesus to be my savior. And D.L. Moody said, well, it might be too late. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if you have tomorrow you don't know if Jesus is returning or tragedy strikes. You don't know. It may be too late. And the young guy just kind of laughed and moved away. Well, a few weeks later, as he gathered all his stuff and was about to leave town, D.L. Moody was impressed by God one more time. Just, just go and talk to him. And so he went and talked to the guy and said, come on, today... This day is the day of salvation. This is the day you need to believe, receive Christ. 
And the young man was annoyed. He said, I've told you the plan. The plan is I'm going out west. I'm going to get set for life. When I have all the money I need, I'll move back. Then I will receive Jesus. That night, the young man got very sick. He got sick enough to enter the hospital. He got sick enough that today we would say he would be in ICU. Very, very sick young man. And D.L. Moody came to visit him. And he said, young man, it could be too late. You got to receive Christ. And with his weak voice, he said, look, pastor, I don't want to see you again. I told you the plan. And he got better. His health was restored. He and his wife packed up and they were set to leave. And D.L. Moody thought, that's it. I don't have another opportunity. But late that night when he was sleeping, there was a rap on his door. And it was that young man's wife. My husband's sick again. That illness that left him, it came back. He won't make it through the night. Will you come and visit? Will you come and pray? And when D.L. Moody walked into the room, the young man was staring at the ceiling and he was saying, it's too late. It's too late. It's too late. And he died. Now we don't know what happened in his last moments. We never know. We always have hope. We know that he knew the gospel. Maybe by faith he believed in Jesus at the last moment. We don't know. We don't know. But we know a day is coming when it will be too late. It will be too late for every person in this room. Either Jesus will return, the parousia, the coming, the rapture, which is what the text is about, or we will die, and it will be too late. Hebrews 9.27 says this, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that the judgment. At the moment we breathe our last here on earth, our eternity is set. There will be no other chance. Make sure, make certain, that it is not too late for you. I want to pick up and read the text. It comes from Matthew 25. Let's read verses 1 to 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. The bridegroom is Christ. Five of them, five of the virgins were foolish, and five of the virgins were wise. The wise are those who have believed in the bridegroom Christ as Savior. The foolish are those who know about the bridegroom, have learned about the bridegroom, have studied the bridegroom, but have not embraced the bridegroom as personal Savior. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, I take it out of Zechariah 4 that the oil represents the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes upon us 
and indwells us at the moment in which we know Christ as Savior. They don't have oil. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't have Christ. They don't have salvation. But when the wise took flasks of oil with them, with their lamps, as the bridegroom Christ was delayed, so far about 2,000 years, right? As the bridegroom Christ was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Life happens. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Here's Christ. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom, Christ, came, and those who were ready, those who were prepared. Last week, uh, Pastor Jeff said this is kind of, the other Jeff, said this is kind of the sermon of being ready. He's right. To this point, we've actually been told five times in the Olivet Discourse, be ready. And for those who were ready, went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. As you and I begin, I think it might be helpful to take a few moments to talk about a first century Jewish wedding. In the first century, Jewish weddings were in two parts. There were two distinct aspects to a wedding, often separated by 6 to 12 months. The first is called Kedushin. It's betrothal. Today we might say it's when you're engaged, but it means so much more than that. In the Kedushin or the betrothal stage, we have a young guy and a young gal and they're betrothed one to another. What happens is that the groom goes to the house of the bride's parents. They have some legalities. They send or say some vows. They declare before one another that they are legally husband and wife. And he gives the mohar, which is the bride price. Incidentally, in this culture, the bride price does not go to her parents. The bride Christ actually goes to the bride. This was their form of social security. So perhaps she is a five sheep, two goat, one camel bride. And so she gets all of that and they're all hers and every offspring through the years belongs to her. This is her social security because maybe in 30 years her husband dies and now she has a huge flock because they've reproduced and she can live off of that because there's no reputable job for a female. And so he pays the mohar, the bride price. And then he goes back home. He goes to live with his parents. She remains living with her parents. They do not share intimate relationships, not until the second stage, the hoopa stage, which we'll talk about in today's text. By the way, this explains a lot of what's going on in Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2. 
the birth narratives of Christ, you remember that Joseph and Mary are pledged to one another. They have gone through the first stage, the Caduceus stage, the betrothed to one another. And suddenly Joseph discovers that Mary is pregnant. Now this is not the time when they are to be intimate with one another, certainly not with anyone else. They are legally husband and wife, but they live separately. There is no intimacy and she is pregnant. Joseph knows he is not the husband. So Joseph has three options. The first option is that he can say that the child within her womb is his own. He can take the child as his own, but his reputation will be ruined from that day forth. No one will ever call him a sadiq, a righteous man again. That's the first option. The second option is he can make sure everyone knows that he's an innocent man. He can expose her publicly divorce her and have her shunned or worse in her community. The third option is he can quietly divorce her. That would clear his reputation if anyone asks. It wouldn't publicly expose her. Then she wouldn't be shunned. Because Joseph is a sadiq, a righteous man, he chooses option number three, the most honorable option. He's going to quietly divorce her and move on. And that's when the angel comes to him. And the angel tells him that the child within the womb is from the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit has come upon her. And the shadow of the Most High has overwhelmed her. So the child to be born is the Son, the Holy One of God. And so he immediately goes to the second stage, but he doesn't have the processional. He just brings her home to live with him. Under normal circumstances, and Joseph and Mary are not normal circumstances, you have that first stage, the Caduceus stage, the betrothal stage. They live apart. They do not share relations for six to 12 months. And then you come to the second stage, the hoopa stage. This is when the bridegroom and his attendants will walk through the streets to the parents' home of the bride. Now, if you've been to Israel, especially on Tuesdays and Thursdays, you see this along the Via Dolorosa, the way of the cross, because they're making their way to the Western Wall. They want to get to the Western Wall, which is a blessing upon their marriage. And so you see this quite often. And what happens is the bridegroom and his attendants go to her house. Then everyone lights a lamp. If you don't have a lamp, you're a party crasher. It's the way to distinguish who is part of the wedding and who is not. This is the setting of today's text. And in verse 1, Jesus compares our desire, the desire of all humans to go to the afterlife, to be with God in heaven. That's a universal desire for most. And he compares that with the 10 attendants, the 10 virgins. I want us to notice from the text, all 10 are reputable people. All 10 are chaste. We would say they are good people. How we would define good, they all make the cut. Their rap sheet maybe is like the speeding ticket. You know, they don't have much there. 
they are people who are soccer moms or weekend warriors on the golf course. They volunteer in the PTO and they're at the Little League games. They're good folk. They're chaste folk. They are reputable folk. But only five of them have oil. Only five of them have the Holy Spirit. Only five have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. All 10 want to be involved with the bridegroom. All 10 know about the bridegroom. All 10 have heard stories about the bridegroom. Only five have received the bridegroom as personal savior. And the text is all about it being too late. It's all about that moment when either Jesus suddenly comes, imminently comes at any moment, maybe today, maybe tomorrow, maybe a hundred years, maybe three millennia from now, or when we die, for it is appointed for man to die once, and after that, the judgment. When Jesus returns, when the bridegroom comes for the church, for his bride, or when we die, at that moment, eternity is set. There are no additional chances. Eternity is set. So the question to ask ourselves is this. Are you, am I, are we prepared? As I think about preparedness, I think about one of those illustrations that, well, it's just common to us. It's part of our history. We know about it. I think of the Titanic, the unsinkable ship. The Titanic was set and it was on its maiden voyage. It had a full crew. It had full passengers. Based on the number of people, it was supposed to have between 32 and 64 uh, lifeboats. Now this was a full ship. It should have had the full complement, but it only had 20. Someone thought, you know, all these lifeboats on the deck, they clutter things up. That's too many, and so there were only 20 on a ship in its maiden voyage. They were in cold water. There were icebergs. And so Captain Smith, that morning, was supposed to have a drill. It was a scheduled drill. It was a required drill. Everyone was supposed to work together to learn how to get in lifeboats. But he canceled it. They were unprepared. And then when the ship hit the iceberg and it began to sink, there were individuals in their staterooms. They thought it's only a drill. And they stayed in their staterooms. Others came up on deck. But because they didn't know what they were doing, two of the 20 lifeboats actually floated away without a single person in it. That left 18 lifeboats for a full ship. Almost none of them were filled to capacity. If the 20 lifeboats had been filled to capacity, 472 additional people would have saved. They would have kept their lives. But they only had a capacity for less than 40% in the lifeboats if they were all filled. 32% of the people on the Titanic lived. What happened? They weren't prepared. They weren't prepared and it was what? It was too late. The Bible is quite exclusive when it comes to the gospel. When it comes to the return of Christ. When it comes to 
eternal life in heaven. It is very exclusive. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says, For our sake, he, the Father, made him the Son, who knew no sin, Jesus never sinned, fully God took on humanity, the incarnation, we call the hypostatic union, fully God, fully man. He went to the cross and he who knew no sin became sin for us. He was covered with our sin that through him, through faith in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us when by faith we believe that Jesus paid the penalty of our sin and offers eternal life. Tragically, in our text, only five of the ten were ready. All ten knew about the bridegroom. All ten had heard stories about the bridegroom. All ten wanted to go to the banquet that kicks off eternity. Only five were ready. For the rest, it's too late. I've been pastoring for 35 years, three churches, almost 20 years here. And I look out and I know, I know that many of you know Christ as Savior. I also know some of you don't. Who I don't know, I'm not sure, but we're in the same situation. We all know about Christ, we've all heard stories about Christ. We've even heard how to receive Christ, but unless it's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we don't know Christ. And if he were to return, this text is about the return of Christ. If he were to return and we don't know Christ, it will be too late. If we were to pass away today and we don't know Christ, it would be too late. Let me read verses four to six again. But the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom Christ was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept, life happened. But at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom, here's Christ. Come out to meet him. Be prepared, be ready. Again, five of them have the oil. Based on Zechariah 5, Four and five, I believe the oil represents the Holy Spirit. And notice that they can't transfer the oil to another. You might say, well, that's kind of selfish. No, you just can't transfer the Holy Spirit. A parable makes one point. And the point is not about whether I can give you oil. The, the parable isn't about kindness or sharing. The parable is about personally being ready. And salvation is not transferable. With our remaining time, I want to make a few points. The first I've already made, salvation is not transferable. I'm not denying that you and I have the privilege, the obligation to tell others about Christ. That is our obligation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Pray there for the Lord of the harvest 
to send out laborers into his harvest field. Look out in the harvest field. They are white unto harvest. We have this joy. We have this obligation to share salvation with others. But our salvation is not transferable. A day will come when we will all stand before Christ. The end time, the eschatological, eschatological judge. And he will ask us, why should I let you into my father's kingdom? And someone might say, well, my parents have great faith. And I believe the Lord would say something like this. Yes, I have a great relationship. It is with great joy that your parents will spend eternity with me. But at this moment, their faith is not relevant to my question. Why should I let you into heaven? And the only answer is, you, Jesus, are the way and the truth and the life. I have no life without you. It's by faith in you. You might say, well, I know a lot about you, Jesus. I mean, Jeff was at Highland for like 20 years. Do you know what it's like to listen to him preach? That's purgatory. I've suffered enough. And that might be true. But that still will not be an adequate answer. We need a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't let today go by without you, me, us, all of us, certain that we know Jesus, lest it be too late. The second thing I note from the text is the alarming setting. The setting is everyone knows the bridegroom. That's the setting. Everyone wants to be with the bridegroom. That's the setting. But not everyone has personally received the bridegroom. See, it doesn't matter ultimately if we just know of Jesus. We've got to know him personally, not of him. We need to know him. It's not enough to go to church. It's not enough to be in a Bible study or occasionally to pray. We need to know Jesus. Don't leave today without knowing Jesus. Don't allow it to be too late. Third, when Christ returns, there are no second chances. We live in a theological world that has loved and still loves second chances. At one time in certain theological traditions, there was a lot of talk of purgatory. When you die, you go to a place of suffering where you atone for or pay for your own sins. Or maybe through the treasury of merits, you might be granted some through indulgence and you can spring from purgatory into heaven. That's very rarely taught today. But we have another theological position today and that's this idea of second chances. Some would teach, some do teach, that if you die not knowing Christ, he will present himself and give someone another opportunity. But what does Hebrews 9 say? It is appointed for man to die once. And after that, the judgment. 
There is no second chances. When we breathe our last, when Jesus returns or our earthly life is over, eternity is set. It's set. Verse 10, the door is closed. Verse 13, no one knows the day or the hour of Christ's return, so be prepared. And that is the fourth point, the need to be prepared. There's a couple stages to it. The first is essential, and that is we need a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't leave today without knowing Christ as your personal Savior. Ask him to come into your heart. You're a sinner and so am I. Sin is any attitude, thought, action, inactivity, motive that is outside the will of God. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 23. 1 John 1, 8. If we claim that we have no sin, we are liars. The truth is not in us. We are sinners. And that's why Jesus, in his grace, paid the penalty of sin died, rose again, offering salvation to all who believe in him. There are no second chances. To be prepared, we need Jesus. Well, let's suppose that most of us here have already prayed and received Jesus by faith. How then are we prepared? Well, think about it. What do you want Jesus to find you, me, us doing when he returns. I think of VBS, Vacation Bible School. We had four one-week Vacation Bible Schools this year at the four campuses. 21 kids, I believe, prayed to receive Christ. Can you imagine if you were volunteering at Vacation Bible School and a child was coming to Christ and you had a part in that and Jesus returned? That would be awesome. We're going to have three campuses of one way and probably after January, four campuses of one way. Can you imagine if you are volunteering in one way club and you're telling kids about Jesus or even doing crowd control and Jesus returns, isn't that how you want him to find you, me? Can you imagine the day he returns and you took time to have devotions and prayer? Can you imagine the week he returns? Earlier in the week, you shared Christ with a coworker or a friend. What do you want Jesus to find you, me, us doing when he returns? Do you want him to find us as workaholics or faithful workers who have balance in life? Does the idea of him finding us, feeding our besetting sin, turn our stomach? Or do we want him to find us prepared, to find us ready, alert? I think Jeff was right when he said this whole series is about being ready. Five times we've already been told, be ready, be ready. The Lord is coming. How do you, how do I want to be found when Jesus returns? Are you prepared? Am I prepared? Do we know Christ? Are we living for Christ? As I thought about this, I thought about the first great awakening 
We've had two in the United States. We need a third. The Great Awakening, it was actually before we became a country. It was 1734, yeah, 1734 to 1744. There was a man named George Whitfield. He was a great preacher. He was an itinerant preacher. He went from place to place on horseback and, and he would preach about Christ and, and literally thousands and thousands and thousands came to Christ. And he had this uncanny ability when he was preaching to somehow address the concerns of some that were listening. And he was preaching from this text, Matthew 25, 1 to 13, and he was telling people, you gotta be ready before it's too late. And then he mentioned in verse 10 that a day is coming when the door will shut. And one teen boy turned to another. And the teen boy said to the other, so what? If one door shuts, another will open. And a few minutes later, George Whitfield made this statement. He said, it might be today that someone with trifling aspects of life who's not serious about life, just thought to themselves, if one door closes, another will open. And of course, the two teens sat up. And he said, the door that will open, if you're not ready at Christ's return, is the door to a crisis eternity separated from God in a literal hell. And he's right. That's what the Bible teaches. Before it's too late, make sure. Make sure that you know Christ. It's not the denomination that you're in. It's not the training that you have. It's not how much you know of the bridegroom. It's whether you and I know the bridegroom. Have we believed in Christ alone, his atonement, his payment for our sins. And are we ready, not only knowing Christ, but living for Christ, investing our life for Christ? How do you, how do I, how do we want to be found? The text is about the imminent any moment return of Christ. Maybe today, I hope so. Maybe next week, that would be fine. Maybe a thousand years from now, then I'm going to die. I still need to be ready. Make sure, my friends, that you, I, that we are ready, that it's not too late. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for the Olivet Discourse, a lot that I need to apply to my life and a lot that those who are here also need to apply to their lives. Father, I pray that each person here would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they have received your son, that they have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And if they don't know, may today be the day. May they not leave today without by faith saying, come into my heart, forgive me of my sin, become my Savior and Lord. I mean it. And for those of us who know Christ, may we evaluate the preparedness of our lives. If we're driven by recreation and driven by self-advancement, 
more than caring about the kingdom and a balanced life, including serving you faithfully. Father, we want to be prepared. We want to be ready. Urge us by your spirit for both of these to be true. It's the name of Christ we pray.